Would you please turn with me to your study outline that you'll find there in your program. And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online, as well as our friends at uh, Baptist Community Church in Arco, Idaho, and also Purpose Church in Kalispell, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us and the thousand plus people or so that join us online every Sunday. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Uh, We're doing a series on the final seven words of Jesus on the cross called Last Words. And today we come to the fifth of the seven words, the fifth word, which is called the word of distress. John 19, verse 28, the word of distress. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, Jesus knew he had completed God's purpose, his mission, his his plan for him. And he could see the finish line. I mean, the finish line is right there. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Uh, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures that were prophesied about him. A thousand years earlier, David, who was what we call a a type of Christ, a foreshadowing, a a Christ figure. We've got many English teachers, professors uh, here as as part of our church family. And they'll tell you that a, a Christ figure is like a picture of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus before he came. And so a thousand years before Jesus uh, King David really served as a Christ figure, shadowing his, foreshadowing his ministry. And so in Psalm 22, verse 15, he says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. In Psalm 69, verse 3, he said, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Uh, verse 21 He says, they put gall in my food, remember that, we're going to see that in a moment, Uh, and gave me vinegar, that's mentioned later on as well. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar uh, for my thirst. Uh, Some of these prophecies are fulfilled because Jesus intentionally, he knew scripture so well that he quoted them in his moment of distress, but some of them, most of them, by far most of them, were out of his control, and they were things that he could not control. But when he could control it, he, was, he so remembered Scripture, he knew this verse by heart, and so he, he said it. Uh, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Awana, and he had these verses memorized. And so in this moment, he remembers what David had said and how it applies to him now, and, and he speaks it. Tim Keller writes, when you pricked Jesus Christ, when you stabbed Jesus Christ, he literally bled Scripture. He knew the scripture so well. He thought about the scripture so pervasively. It so saturated and permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him instinctively. The scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith all happened because he was was saturated with scripture. 332 prophecies given hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus. The chances that one person could fulfill all of these accidentally, by chance, in a lifetime, are 1 in 84 followed by 97 zeros. 20 of these prophecies were fulfilled just in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. Let me just show you eight of them. Zechariah 11, verse 12, he'll be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, Psalm 41, verse 9, he'll be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 31, verse 11, he'll be deserted and denied by his disciples. We were just in Psalm 22, soldiers will gamble for his clothes. 
Uh, Psalm 35, he'll be accused by false witnesses. Uh, Isaiah 53, he'll be humiliated, wounded, and bruised. Also, he said he'll stand silent before his accusers. And then Psalm 22 is just fascinating. It is, it is the most um, precise, uh, precise description of Roman crucifixion. His hands and feet will be pierced. And it goes on and on and describes a Roman crucifixion. And the Romans didn't invent crucifixion for another seven or 800 years. And yet here, seven, eight, nine centuries before the Romans even invented crucifixion, here we have a precise description of it uh, in the Psalms. Uh, Max Lucado writes, Why did Jesus proclaim his thirst from the cross? To lay just one more plank on a sturdy bridge over which a doubter could walk. Since he did not want our heads to keep his love from our hearts. I love that phrase. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Jesus used his final moments to offer further proof that he was the Messiah. Since he did not want our heads to keep his love from our hearts. That's why we believe in Christian apologetics, that what we call the defense of the faith, so strongly here at Purpose Church. That's why you, you hear me talk about it all the time. Because we don't want our heads, the doubts in the heads of our friends or family members, we don't want the doubts in our heads in order to keep his love from our hearts. And so that's why Jesus made sure all those scriptures will fulfill all that concrete, objective evidence for our heads so that we'd open up our hearts to have him in our hearts. A quick commercial, Sean McDowell, uh, one of the probably the top five defenders of the Christian faith in the world today. Uh, he's going to be with us on Father's Day at all three services, 8.30, 9.45, boy, I just want you to circle it on your calendar. I'm going to keep mentioning it because I want you there and I want your friends there because he, he's going to give answers to the questions in our head and to the heads of our friends and, and young adults particularly around us. Millennials need these answers in their head so that they'll be willing to open up their hearts uh, to Jesus. Uh, back to verse 28 once again. It, it says, later knowing that everything had now been finished and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. This is the first time Jesus talks about his own pain. When the crown of thorns goes on his head, he didn't go, my head hurts. When his back was, was whipped and scourged, he didn't say, oh, my back this is the first time Jesus talks about his own pain. And I think it's because he can see the finish line. He knows he's, he's won the race that God set out for him. He knows he's fulfilled his mission. He's right at the fish, finish line. And so he finally talks about his own pain. He had not had liquid for about 18 hours. Probably the last time he had had any liquid was drinking the cup at the Lord's Supper on Thursday night. Uh, he had sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been scourged, so he had lost all kinds of blood in the scourging. He had stood for hours in the sun before Pilate. He had been tortured for 12 hours, and now he's crucified. And historians tell us that one of the severest agonies of crucifixion is a raging thirst. A raging thirst. You think about all the other, and we tend to focus on the nails and the hand and, and all these other things and the feet. But they say one of the greatest agonies of crucifixion was a raging thirst. Now, at the beginning of his crucifixion, Jesus had been offered wine mixed with myrrh and gall. Remember gall that was prophesied a thousand years before? Historians tell us that Jewish women 
would offer this concoction of myrrh, gall, and wine to, to anesthetize, to numb the pain, and to help men get through crucifixion. But Jesus refused it. He wanted to have his wits about him. It didn't want to be dulled at all. He wanted to experience it all. He wanted to feel it all. And he wanted to keep himself clear-headed because he knew he still had these seven final words uh, before his, his death that he wanted to share with us. He wanted to be clear in sharing these last words. But now he asks for something to drink. Because he's, at the, he's right at the finish line. It's not going to impair his thinking in any way. And because by this time, his throat was so parched that he couldn't get his words out. He probably barely got out the words, I, I thirst. And he, and he knew that he still had two more words he wanted to share of these last words. Uh, the sixth word from the cross, we're going to talk about next Sunday, on Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about the sixth word from the cross. And then the seventh word from the cross, we're going to talk about at the Good Friday service. So he, he still had these two more very important things to say, and his throat just couldn't get it out anymore. He wants one more burst of strength to finish the race. He's like a marathoner that with a mile to go grabs a cup of water and throws it down just for that last birth burst to the finish line. And, and these two words, I thirst, in the English, in the Greek language were actually just one word, dipso. And so with a parched throat, and he could, he could barely get it out. It was hardly above a whisper. And, and, and you know if you've been with people that are near death, that sometimes they can, they can barely speak. And so he says, he gets out the word, one word, dipso, I thirst. It would have been more like a moan than it would be, uh, would be a cry or a shout. And he moans, dipso. And so they, they get him this, what we would call sour wine. Uh, the Old Testament calls it vinegar. Uh, it was the cheapest drink of its time. It was like bottled water is to us. It was even more prevalent than water because the water of that day wasn't very good. And so sour wine, what the Old Testament calls vinegar, this is what they would have had. Uh, a jar of it would have, been, would have been at the crucifixion site. And as a matter of fact, we'll look in a second. It says that there was a jar of this, this sour wine, this vinegar, there at the crucifixion site. And it would have been there for thirsty soldiers, for the soldiers to drink, but also they would sometimes offer it to those being crucified. Now, they didn't do that because they were being merciful. Opposite reason. The whole goal of crucifixion was to prolong the agony. And so sometimes they give them a bit of water just to keep them alive so they could suffer even more. But when those soldiers offered it to Jesus, they unwittingly, unknowingly, without knowing what they were doing, fulfilled the words of prophecy from a thousand years before. Now Jesus is uh, the Passover lamb. And so it says in verse 29, a, wall, a, a jar of wine vinegar that we were just talking about was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. Now why would John include a, a detail like that? A stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now let's go back 1,400 years to the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of the Passover lamb in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top 
and on both sides of the doorframe. What was the sign that they were making as they took the blood on the hyssop, dipped it in the blood of the Passover lamb, and put it on the top and then on the signs? Here they are making the sign of the cross 1,400 years before we even knew what a cross was. On the top and on both sides of the doorframe, none of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe. The, the blood of the Passover lamb will protect their house and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Every year for 1,400 years, remember the Passover lamb and the hyssop and the blood over the doorframe. When you enter the land that the Lord your God will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And for 1,400 years, they do this Passover and the Passover lamb again and again. And they understood it was to remember a part of their history. But something within them said, I wonder if this has any deeper meaning. I wonder if this has any deeper symbolism. And then 1,400 years later, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, it's the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now here's another tremendous piece of irony. The water of life is now dying of thirst. The water of life is now dying of thirst. Remember Chris Brown preached a couple months ago about Jesus and the, and the Samaritan woman at the well. And in John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh, the, the irony of the water of life is now dying of thirst. And then a couple of other things I want to say towards the end of this study uh, that I want to say, and I, and I think... The reason you came here this morning, uh, the reason maybe you're watching online or in Kalispell or in, or in Arco, Idaho or in Montana, um, the reason you're listening to this later on might very well be that God invited you to hear this for two things God wants to say to you, two things. First of all, the fact that you suffer does not make you a failure any more than Jesus was a failure. You know, one of the hardest times, the hardest things about going through a hard time, you're going through the hard time, but then Satan begins to whisper in your ear. You know why you're going through this time of suffering? You know why you're going through a hard time? Because of your sin. God is punishing you. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, sin does bring suffering. But I believe that's only some of the time. 
most of the time, the very fact that you're suffering might be because you're in the center of God's will. I have found that sometimes the suffering is the result of, of obeying God. And so the fact that you are suffering today, I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what, what difficult thing it is. But the fact that you suffer does not make you a failure any more than Jesus was a failure. Don't listen to those lies of Satan. Okay? You, you might very well be in a time of suffering because you're in the center of God's will. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, the writer says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And maybe the whole reason why you're here this morning is because God wants to whisper to you in the middle of whatever it is that you're going through. He wants to whisper to you, don't grow weary, don't lose heart. I persevered. And he, and he said, I thirst so that we could identify with him in his pain, in his agony. We could know that he suffered and yet he eventually had the joy that was set before him. And he says, listen to me, you hang in there. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. I eventually triumphed and I in you will eventually triumph again. Uh, James, uh, the brother of Jesus, wrote these words. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then one final thing I want to share is that this word from the cross tells us that Jesus understands what you're going through. Jesus, th this word more than any of the others, I thirst, I'm suffering. This tells us more than any other of the seven words. Jesus understands what you're going through. Uh, theologians have a fancy word for Jesus. They call him the theanthropic person. Theos is Greek for God. Anthropos is Greek for man. So they put them together, and he's the theanthropic person. Uh, Jesus is the God-man. And you can see this in all the stories of his life. Jesus is in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he's so tired as a man that he falls asleep. But then he wakes up, and as God, he calms the storm. He's heartbroken at Lazarus' tomb. The Bible says that he weeps as a man. But then, as God, he proceeds to raise him from the dead. He suffers as a man on the cross. I thirst, dip so, I thirst. But as God, three days later, he rises from the dead. So as a man, he can identify with your pain. But as God, he can do something about it. And don't you always like to share with people that have been through what you've been through? Aren't those your, I mean, we can help each other regardless of if we've gone through. You don't have to go through everything in order to help and be an encouragement. But isn't it extra special when somebody that's been through what you've been through 
is, is able to, sh- you're able to share with them. I mean, that's why our grief share ministry is so wonderful because you get together, if you've had a loss of a loved one in your life, you get together with people that have also lost somebody that they loved. Divorce care. If you're going through a divorce, you get together with people here at our church in divorce care that also have um, um, gone through a divorce. Uh, on, on Celebrate Recovery, our night of hope on Tuesday nights right over in the H building. Uh, are you facing an addiction? You get together with other people that have also faced an addiction and, all, and, and conquered an addiction. I had a, just a beautiful experience a couple weeks ago. Um, it was painful, but it was beautiful. For, um, a young lady was talking to out in the lobby, and, and, and she was post-abortive and, and, and participated in abortion, and she was just weeping with me. And so I prayed with her. I, I tried to love and support her as best I could. But what a wonderful thing, just four feet away was somebody from our For Life ministry, and they had the button on For Life, and this is something, somebody who had also had happened to go through and participated in an abortion. And so I said to her, could she pray with you? And what a beautiful thing it was to see these two sisters in Christ coming together who had experienced the same pain, but now together in Jesus were experiencing healing together because they had gone through a similar thing. Freddie Litz writes, Father Damien was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved to Kalaweo, a village on the island of Molokai in Hawaii that had been quarantined to serve as a leper colony. For 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch, preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools, bands, and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said, Kalaweo became a place to live rather than a place to die, for Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance, though. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with the patients. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close, and for this, the people loved him. But then one day, he stood up, and he began his sermon with two words. Rather than you lepers, he said, we lepers. He himself contracted leprosy, serving those that had gone through it. And that's what that's what Jesus is able to say. He's going to say, we who thirst, we who suffer, we together can conquer this thing side by side. John Stott writes, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I turn to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. The writer of Hebrews writes, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.